Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Politics as Usual. For those keen-eared amongst you, you will notice that this isn't Greg Power. This week, it's Emily Death, Head of Programmes at Global Partners Governance, coming to you with a slightly different type of podcast. As regular listeners know, Politics as Usual normally features an interview with one political figure reflecting on their experiences. But this time around, we thought we'd share with you some insights from a few different individuals. The upcoming clips are taken from a recent Global Partners event on populism and parliaments. In a month which has seen developments in the race for the next US presidential election, surprise results in Irish politics and several announcements from the new UK government, we thought this would provide some interesting listening. First, we're going to hear from Maria Ianova, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, co-chair of the Equal Opportunities Caucus in that parliament and deputy chair of the Parliament of Ukraine Committee on European Integration. She presents her fascinating experiences standing up for her values in the face of a wave of populist politics in Ukraine and reflecting on the wider regional political context in which she works. Thank you so much, uh, ladies and ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, distinguished uh, uh, colleagues. As um, telling the truth, uh, five years ago I have been here uh, just uh, to the right in the hall, where we uh, organized an exhibition, uh, War in Donbass. And that is why for me, of course, uh, how to say, such a difference, yeah? War in Donbass and now populism and parliaments, the topic. Uh, what I can say, we still have war in Donbass and we still have Russian aggression. But first of all, I'd like to thank, of course, for invitation and to say that we really Ukraine appreciate constant support of Great Britain. Believe me, we feel it. Uh, in uh, many cases, together with the British parliamentarians in different delegations, in different uh, international um, uh, institutions, we are in minority. Uh, but, you know, it's better to be in minority but with the principles and values than in majority with the populism and, uh, uh, you know, promises which in reality um, very simple and primitive and unfortunately which is very, sometimes very dangerous for our countries. So uh, today, of course, uh, uh, we will discuss uh, topic populism and uh, I also would like to say that in our country I think it's a disease. and. Uh, um, um, it's such a, I can't say that it's a phenomenon, but unfortunately it became a global trend and uh, um, a disease of current political system. I can say that, um, for example, in current election, in all advertisement of our opponents, I was an old politician. And uh, um, it worked. And that is why, yes, now I am in a position. So I started my work in the parliament. Uh, in 2012, in a position also, then we became a party, uh, uh, a, a party power after revolution of dignity. Now, we are again in a position. But I can say that um, we are, how to say, sad, or we, are, of course, we disappointed. But uh, we didn't betray our principles and values. And you know, it's better to be in minority again, uh, but to be in favor of uh, and to say people the truth. As also we can see this global trend that a lot of political leadership, they don't want you know, to see uh, and to look on the truth. So uh, usually, especially about our situation in Ukraine, usually such some European leaders, they look into Ukraine on the truth with the closed eyes. And believe me, uh, when we are talking about populism, it's also about terminology. I also remember why I remanded uh, our exhibition, uh, uh, Donbass and War. Because it took time, around probably <coughs> the last two years, also um, to explain 
uh, our European and international partners that it's not an internal conflict in Ukraine, that it's Russian aggression, that um, we need peacekeeping mission, we need uh, Crimea back, we, that it was annexation of Crimea, and uh, that we really need more sanctions uh, for Russian Federation. But unfortunately, uh, it's about global leadership. And I can say that um, this leadership, especially in European Union, uh, stable and strong. Uh, we see now how um, position for of some leaders of big countries is, uh, um, is uh, uh, changing. And uh, I'd like to say that uh, to return to the topic of populism, of course, populism is a like circumstance of detrust of the people. But uh, in many, in most, uh, uh, for example, populism is a, the sign that something um, that something um, goes wrong uh, in political system. Um, but we have to analyze how it would happen. And uh, uh, now we observe in Ukraine that um, the politics has stopped being about ideology. Uh, it's not about ideological uh, parties. It's not about principles and values. Unfortunately, it's about short political uh, projects. And uh, it's about achieving uh, by certain political players its own goals. Uh, you know, just such an example, you know that probably recent years you have heard about Ukraine like a word corruption, corruption, corruption. But you know what? After this election, <coughs> on the cent central media, there is no word corruption. It disappeared. So the corruption disappeared or the news disappeared? So, uh, and I can tell you, uh, the owners of our central mass media, that's oligarch, who are providing the, their political view through mass media. And that's a challenge, that's a threat. I don't think not only for Ukraine, but for a lot of also European countries. And such a funny thing, but if, if uh, one year ago in the news, a woman or a man who had an accident was like died, now when we had such news, a man or a woman survived. I mean, positive news. So it's a big difference uh, when you see the monitoring, like how aggressive uh, and negative when used. And, and now, like a good picture, a nice picture, very positive picture. But when you go into details and when you go into reality, it's different. And here I can say that for me, it's a question of national security. Uh, and uh, I um, was really impressed uh, that um, um, really why I started to talk about media, because we have to emphasize the role of media in such uh, rapid uh, spreading of populism phenomenon and uh, really we started to live in the world of uh, emotions um, and people uh, believe in emotions but they stopped to believe in facts um, and they they started to believe in shows but not in honor or dignity um, it is so hard to know what the truth uh, is and uh, uh, in reality where any information could be bought or manipulated. So um, also um, recently Ukraine became a, um, again in the center of uh, um, world news. Uh, uh, this Trump's uh, uh, re-election team for example uh, dropped a total more than one million uh, into Facebook, dollars into Facebook advertisement with only a week in the end of September 19, uh, 2019. And it was done in order to counter uh, 
criticism of USA president uh, as he has been facing after the details of a phone call with our president. Um, thus, the real value now is uh, what, uh, uh, what is discussed, but who is talking. And also, the question is, um, does the truth without advertising has chances to be heard? Uh, uh, to be heard in such informational environment. As I mentioned, uh, really during our electional campaign, mass media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube were absolutely critical. And if you uh, took, for example, a candidate, Zelensky, before, uh, 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 during his electional campaign, so he has probably three interviews, but only for one channel uh, who belongs to Kolomoisky with whom they are partners. Um, and, but it's, it was not a phenomenon because it was a constant uh, work during two years because two years ago we had a serial about the president, about the man, very simple man, Golobarotka, who was on bicycle and who was solving all the problems, who became a president, and became and started to solve all the problems in the country. First he has done, he shooted the parliament, the MPs. Uh, then also, and when, but when you, uh, and that is why, for example, when you go to the village in Ukraine, during an actual campaign, they were waiting to meet, not Zelensky, they were waiting to meet Golobarotchka, this main actor and hero in this serial. And what is the difference? For example, Golobarotchka was on bicycle, but Zelensky has a Range Rover. Uh, also, uh, he, as you know, he's a comic and he's an owner of big company, 95th Quartal. And uh, in this serial, he has no any business, but in reality, Zelensky has business with Kolomoisky and with Russian companies. Uh, in the in movie, he didn't have any flat. In reality, he has villa in Italy with 8 million or, uh, euro. So why I'm telling this? Because it's illusion. It's what mass media made us to believe. Uh, I can tell you um, that uh, it's about fake news. And I was really... Um, um, I was really very, it was very useful for me to watch uh, the Great Hack documentary um, because uh, um, I also remember that times about when we had referendum in Netherlands, you remember, about Ukrainian issue uh, ratification of a cessation agreement. Then we had Brexit pro uh, protests and we were talking with our colleagues and MPs that look, friends, uh, analyze what was going on in Netherlands. Analyze what was going on in the interference of, uh, for example, Russia into USA election. So the world is changing and we have to estimate and we have to analyze um, the, such uh, lessons um, and not to repeat the mistakes. Um, so that is why um, um, how to say, uh, populism as a result of distrust of politicians captures the Europe, I think. Um, it, it's, it is worth of attention. Uh, I also uh, read their um, uh, Guardian's large-scale study on uh, the rise of populism in Europe. And unfortunately, um, it demonstrates that every force voter um, um, in Europe votes for populists. Um, over the past two decades, populist parties, both right and left, have more than tripled their support. And that's a challenge, a challenge uh, for uh, um, each democratic country. Ukraine is a young democracy, and uh, um, I can say that um, Ukraine uh, is now living in such a pity paradigm also, and uh, uh, Ukrainians, they wanted to delete all the um, 
political uh, system and old politicians, but what we have now. Um, we have now a majority in the parliament, uh, and uh, it's a group of people who didn't know each other before. I can tell you that 20% of them, good people, professional people, but unfortunately, um, other part, uh, they are, um, sorry to say, but very young. They are not from politics. Um, and um, it is hard for them to have discussions because parliament, it's about rules and procedures. Parliament, it's about discussions, sometimes emotional. Uh, uh, but anyway, to find the compromise and to find decisions. Now, uh, uh, we call it as a turbo regime. So for 50 days, we adopted 50 laws. Uh, this 50 laws, there were the majority of them were that draft laws which we have been discussed more than one year in previous parliament with civil society, with journalists, with our international partners. We had some expertise, for example, from Venice Commission. So and now they just changed. They are registered on their name. Uh, some of them, unfortunately, are not according to Constitution of Ukraine. And, uh, um, you know, we were very in favor of the revolution of dignity about judicial reform, about decentralization reform, um, and of course about national security. What we see now, the judicial reform now is becoming absolutely uh, not independent, so it's centralized. Uh, the prosecutor office is centralized and depends on the president. Uh, decentralization reform reversed. And we see also now we have discussion on the budget, for example, about national security. We see how the budget for our army is uh, decreasing. So um, the reality is different, and we see it now on their decisions. But still we have such a nice pictures on TV. And um, how to say, when we still um, uh, have a, um, 1,600,000 IDPs in our country, when we still have Russian troops on territory, when Crimea is still under occupation of Russian Federation, it's a threat for our territorial integrity. Because you also know that Putin would like to return empire. And that is why he is making a house in Europe. That is why he is making house not only in Ukraine, he's making house in different in, uh, institutions and organizations. As an example, Council of Europe. Council of Europe, parliamentarians returned Russia Federation uh, after seven resolutions when none of any, I mean, any provision was not uh, implemented by Russia Federation. So, and it's about human rights. It's about independence, it's about respect, rule of law. So that is why, unfortunately, uh, our global political leadership, they are giving, um, and, and to make such actions as impeachment, uh, they are giving Putin a green light to go further and to make this international uh, violation. So uh, to finalize, I um, I can say that um, the professionals in state institutions anyway are needed. We uh, need, um, as, as, as only they can uh, make the country grow, uh, we need predicted experienced people and that is why we also were working during five uh, years with our EU partners on capability, capacity of our institution. That is why we created an anti-corruption institutions and they just started to work. So the most important for Ukraine now is not to destroy the foundation which we have built for five years. And it's not about, now I'm not talking about political party. Now I'm talking about country 
and about that institutions which has to become more stronger and stronger. And of course, we have to continue to build ideological parties, to talk with uh, youth, with our population, but we have to tell them the truth, not what they would like to hear. Because if you would like to analyze the voter of Zelensky, for example, it's a person from one side who supports NATO and EU integration, from other side, no. So uh, it's, again, it's about illusion and populism. And I know that you are now will be in also very uh, hot period of elections. So uh, do not repeat our mistakes. Um, and also do not repeat history mistakes. Uh, as um, we really need stable Great Britain, we need stable EU, we need stable democracies because it's, it's about our future and we have to be um, sometimes probably not very popular, but at least to satisfy and to be ensure in ourselves that I have done everything what I could. Thank you. Next, we'll hear from Professor Roger Eatwell. He's Emeritus Professor of Politics at the University of Bath and co-author of the book National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. He brings vividly to life the historical context to the rise of populist politics in the UK and beyond. Um, unlike many countries, Britain has, has a very weak populist tradition. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this, but I just want to fo focus on one really to start with. And this is the nature of the main parties, their, their ideology and their leadership. Because if we look at the Conservative Party going back into the, the 19th century, I would describe it as a Burkean party after Burke's famous address to the electors of Bristol in the 18th century, when he says, when you elect me, I'm going to be my own man. I, I don't see myself as a delegate who has to accurately reflect the views of the constituents, though I will need to go back to election, to be elected in five or whatever years. Um, and I think that's been a very, very important barrier against populism in the Conservative Party. If we turn to the Labour Party, there are more strands in the Labour Party, but at least two of the, the major historical strands are, are really anti-populist. I'd, I'd say the first is the Fabian strand. The Fabians were the technocrats, they were elitists, they looked down on the working class, it would be the London School of Economics, the Webbs, the intellectuals who would drive the revolution, if that's the term for the Labour Party, forward. And the second strand, very crucial to the Labour Party's history, of course, trade unions. And the trade unions used a language of class mainly, not perhaps class war, but it was very much a language of class, <coughs> whereas populists use a language of the people. And that's a very important distinguish, uh, distinguishing point. Now, there have been people in, in relatively recent years in Britain who've been called populist. Probably the, the two most common before UKIP would be Enoch Powell and Margaret Thatcher. And I certainly think if you, you look at Thatcher, you can see elements of populism in Thatcher. You can see a willingness to exploit popular dissent against the European Union without any attempt to lead opinion on this. I think you can see an attempt, especially after the Falklands War, uh, to portray an image of the strong authoritarian leader uh, looking round the room. Some of you, perhaps not quite my age, but I think you're old enough to remember the, the 1980s and the spitting images puppet show. And I, I vividly remember one episode where Mrs. Thatcher comes into a restaurant accompanied by the cabinet. And Mrs. Oh, Thatcher yeah. is dressed in a male dinner suit, black tie, gigantic Churchillian cigar. They all sit down after she sits down and the waiter comes up and says, what would you like to eat? And she says, raw steak. And the waiter then says, and the vegetables, she said, they'll have the same. <laughs> and I think um, <laughs> that image was one, you know, Thatcher deliberately portrayed uh, in, in the 87 election, the first party political um, broadcast for the Conservatives of Mrs. Thatcher, were complete with Lawrence of Arabia gear on, driving yes. a chieftain battle tank across a German plane. So, you know, this, this is an image, was not the traditional Conservative image of, of leadership and so on. 
But ultimately, I'd argue that Thatcherism wasn't populist. In, in particular, it did not involve a major attack on elites. It certainly didn't see elites as corrupt and a whole series of things that populists typically do. And I would argue that the, the first major manifestation of, of populism in Britain really comes with UKIP. And probably when the history books are written, Nigel Farage will be seen as one, if not the most important politician in Britain in the early 21st yeah. century. I would say as a compliment, I'm simply talking more in terms of the impact that he's had on politics. Now I want to talk briefly about two things. Firstly, I've gone through that introduction without defining populism. I think we really ought just to try and tease out what we mean by populism a little bit more. It was implicit in some of the things I said, but it wasn't clear. And secondly, I offered no reason why UKIP suddenly emerges in the early uh, 21st century. And those are the two issues I want to pick up in the next few minutes. Now, in 2017, the Cambridge Dictionary decided that populism was its word of the year. Easy to see why Trump, Brexit, though Brexit's not purely populist, look around the world, whole series of populists emerging, Erdogan in Turkey and so on. The Cambridge Dictionary defines populism as a form of politics that promises people what they want to hear. And I think that's quite a common approach. Um, sometimes it's put as you make simple solutions for very complicated solutions and situations. I think it's a fairly similar kind of idea. I think most academics would, would expand that argument a bit because there's a split among academics between those who see populism mainly as a style, a way of doing politics, and those, and this is not totally exclusive, who see it as an ideology, actually has some ideas that are worth having a look at. Now let's take the first point. So we've got the Cambridge definition, populism is about telling people what they want to hear. It's cynical in general. I would say that there's at least three other main stylistic points to populism. Populism tends to produce, usually male, but not always male, macho leaders who promise that they will save the people at a moment of crisis, often a crisis they talk up themselves. Uh, Donald Trump, make America great again, American carnage. Secondly, populists, no matter how rich they are or different, try to identify with the people. Donald Trump, you've probably forgotten, 2016, went to WWE wrestling competitions. This is one of the most working class sports in America. The franchise is run by a man called McManus. And he would actually engage in mock wrestling with McManus. He was trying to show he was a man of the people and so on. Um, Nigel Farage, I'm told by somebody I know about speeches, rather likes wine, but see him drinking wine in a pub? No, it's knocking back the pints of beer. You're a man of the people. And perhaps then, most dramatically of all, populists tend to deal in conspiracy theories. Donald Trump, the deep state, Viktor Orban, George Soros is conspiring against the Hungarian people and the Catholic religion and so on. And I think there's, there's a lot in that. I certainly wouldn't want to reject that populists tend to have a style. And especially if you focus on the style, it's very easy to see why people see populism as dangerous. It's manipulative, it tends to stress strong leaders, etc., etc. But one problem with this definition, if you're an academic, is that not all people I would want to call populists fit the definition. Uh, and I'll pick one example. Alice Weidel. Alice Weidel is the leader, the parliamentary leader of the Alternative for Germany. Alice Weidel is 40 years of age, has a PhD in economics, former international banker, she speaks fluent Mandarin, and perhaps the one that's really going to surprise you if you don't follow German politics. She's openly lesbian, who lives with a Sri Lankan partner and two children. Described on a German satirical show as a Nazi slut, this really doesn't come out of Nazi or populist central casting. So you get a second approach from academics that doesn't necessarily say, well, they don't have a style and that this style isn't dangerous, but they say that probably isn't the core defining feature because you're going to find some populists that don't fit. And this, this is an approach that says, look, why don't we just treat populism the same way we treat liberalism? We look for a series of core ideas in it. Um, and populism on this approach is, is usually seen as what's called a thin ideology. It, it's not very complex. It's not like Marxist, it's a very sophisticated, but it has two key ideas. And usually these join to other ideas to flesh it out. One is socialism, 
Chavez, Venezuela, the others nationalism, Donald Trump, Erdogan, and all the European populists like Marine Le Pen and so on. Though having said that, that doesn't necessarily mean that populism is a very elaborate ideology. It tends to be quite a simple ideology that is more negative than positive. It's usually more against something than for something. And according to this, there are, there are two key aspects. One is the claim that government should be ruled by the will of the people. And if you say that, you have to define who the people are. You usually don't do it in an academic way, but implicit is what academics call a heartland. It's the flyover states in the USA. This is the rural America, small town America, rural America, not the urban elites that you see in California on the coast, on the uh, northeast coast, Boston and so on, New York. This is the true America, the heartland. And it's often linked to the idea of a silent majority. There is a silent majority that's not being heard. So in a sense, it's a very democratic rhetoric. It's the rhetoric of the will of the people. The reverse side of the coin is, why is the will of the people not being heard? It's because there are evil elites, domestic or <coughs> sometimes interlocked, who do not listen to the people. It may be because they're corrupt, they have their hand in the till, but it's more generally because they're liberal cosmopolitans. They're driving form an agenda that rejects the will of the people and the nation. Now viewed this way, you can look at populism in two senses. One is, it's still dangerous. Why? Because the first approach, they're lying. They don't really believe in the will of the people. It's a rhetoric they've picked up to exploit a particular political situation. And the second approach is, this causes even more anger. But when you attack elites and you tell people and the politicians are corrupt, especially if they're not, some clearly are, especially in former communist states, but not exclusively in former communist states, when you tell them that the people are a liberal, politically correct elite, you make people more angry. So it's easy to see why academics in general, journalists in general, politicians in general, fear populism. But in this book um, I did last year, only last year with Matt Goodwin, we try to look at it in a more empathetic way. I say empathetic because I've never voted Brexit Party or UKIP in my life and so on, but we're, we're trying to understand populism in, in two senses. One is, when they say the will of the people should prevail, what they're actually saying is there's a lot wrong with democracy, that an important section of the people is not being listened to. And when they say the elites have too much power, they actually have some truth in this. And not just rich business elites, the Koch brothers, the Koch brothers in America who donate vast sums of money and the money that came into the Brexit campaign. But generally, elites set a liberal agenda, a politically correct liberal agenda, that is not accepted by large numbers of people. And liberals often are not willing to, to buy this. Now, can I quickly state I'm not religious. I've never been religious in my life. I describe myself as agnostic. There's this famous case in Northern Ireland where people, the, the gay couple, go into the bakers, they ask, will you bake a cake, and so on. And almost all liberals think the right resides with the gay couple, not with the religious people to think they have their own morality and point of view that should they enable them to say, no, we're not going to do that, go to the shop down the road, that, that is pluralism. And so I think there's something in this, that there's a kind of liberal arrogance that claims it's pluralistic and that it supports difference, but actually doesn't often, and it demonizes those who don't. Now I'm conscious of time, so I'm just going to briefly give you an outline of the key arguments why populism is growing in this book and focus on one of them. We talk in this book of the four Ds. Distrust of politicians and elites. Destruction of communities, not just the national community but local communities. Deprivation, not necessarily absolute deprivation, the poorest don't tend to vote, but relative deprivation. Feeling you're declining, feeling the American dream is disappearing. And fourthly, de-alignment, the way people are becoming de-aligned from politics. Uh, in the 1950s, only about 10% of people in Britain switched votes between elections. That's between, 19, between 2010, 2017, it's just over 50%. We've got a massive churn, which is making it very difficult to predict the current election. So those four Ds are dealt with in the book, but I'm just going to talk to you about one, distrust. There's been a massive growth of alienation from mainstream politics. 
not just mainstream politics, but people associated with it, universities, experts, and so on. And I think we can look at this in a variety of ways. And because I'm very conscious of time, I'll just pick a few. One is the way that politics has become more technocratic, it's become more distant, and almost wants to push ordinary people out of politics. Now, can I say I'm a Remain voter? Remain a Remain voter, because you probably think I'm not. This is a quote from Jean-Claude Juncker, ex European Union Commission. I'm going to read it, because if I paraphrase it, you're going to think I'm manipulating this. We decree something, then we float it, and wait some time to see what happens. If no clamour occurs, because most people do not grasp what's been decided, we continue step by step until the point of no return is reached. Now, you can defend democracy in, in, in terms of what's called output democracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy may create stability, peace, a good economy. But if it's input democracy, ordinary people are having a say in it. This is the opposite of this. This is, this is an elite deciding that they know best and not listening to ordinary people. Let me give you a second example, then I'll give you some percentages and finish. Second example, Nine, no, 1945, Labour wins its first majority in the House of Commons. Three of the, three big Labour leaders, the big three, Attlee, Attlee was Haley Private School in Oxford, Morrison, London County Council and so on, working class by occupation before he became an MP. Ernest Bevan, leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, working class by occupation before he became an MP. Two of the big Labour three are working class by occupation. 2017, 7% of MPs are lawyers, 3% have worked in a working class occupation. Legislators around the world have seen a decline in working class representation and people have spotted it. I'll just give you some <coughs> statistics to finish with. 2017, opinion poll. Politicians do not care about people like me. 58% agree. 2017, another opinion poll. Who do you trust? List of people who you trust. Weather forecasts, we know how good they are. 75% of British people trust weather forecasters. <laughs> Politicians, I'll get the figure right. One seven, 17% people trust politicians. <coughs> 2019 poll. Have we been let down by the establishment? 83% of British people in 2019 in a stratified opinion poll said they had been let down by the establishment. Now, I'm not necessarily agreeing with all of this, but my point is, if all you do is damn populism, you don't understand two fundamental issues. One is democracy needs reviving. It, it, we need a series of radical reforms. If I had a lot more time, I'd talk to you about how to reform democracy. We need that. And secondly, people, especially less educated, remember the Brexit votes largely, but not exclusively, are less educated, especially less educated people, people living in rural areas in America, people living in small town peripheral areas, feel very alienated from a liberal elite who they, dominate, who they believe dominates politics. And to some extent, that's right. So these people are not completely foolish. And I think the task is, on the one hand, to spot the dangers <coughs> of populism, which is much greater, I should add, in Brazil and Eastern Europe than it is in Britain or the Netherlands. And on the other hand, to spot where populism's a safety valve. It's actually telling us some things about how we've gone wrong. We'll hear from Baroness Sarah Ludford, Liberal Democrat member of the House of Lords and a former London member of the European Parliament, who reflects on her time in Brussels as the European Parliament saw its own wave of populist parties and MEPs. Thank you very much, Alison, and thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I mean, I was very pleased to listen to Roger, from whom I've learned uh, a great deal. Um, may I just say that um, I've never been a fan of Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, and, and, and he's wrong, because, I mean, the Commission does not make law. Um, anyway, we can come back to that. I, I was asked to talk a bit about my sort of European experience. Uh, may I say I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps not a great person to talk about democracy, given that, uh, like Alison, I'm an appointed member of the House of Lords. But in my defence, I was an elected politician for 23 years, first as a local councillor in Islington and then as, a, as an MEP. 
so that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. Um, and on the European scene, it, it is actually a misconception that populist and nationalist parties are a new phenomenon because the um, <coughs> Le Pen party in its various names has been represented uh, since 1984, uh, I was reminded. And UKIP came in in 99. Um, I mean, my, um, uh, my, first, my 15 years in the European Parliament were coterminous with Nigel Farage. Um, it's hard to keep track of them as the composition and names of their political groups changed with bewildering regularity. Um, but they are now the fifth largest group in European Parliament, calling themselves the Identity and Democracy Group. Uh, they might change it tomorrow, of course. Of uh, which the core members are uh, uh, Lega from Italy, the uh, AFD from Germany, and I think they call themselves now the Rassemblement National, the, the Le Pen lot, uh, plus uh, people from other parties, uh, uh, countries. Um, Brexit party is not in this group, um, but in the so-called non-attached, with the DUP, some Slovaks, the Five Star Movement, big chunk of them, um, Golden Dawn and Communists from, from Greece, Jobbik from Hungary and some others. Um, so, um, you know, they're all, um, they can't even form a group. Um, now, I would say that lots of these people can't run the proverbial in a brewery um, because they keep falling out. They Parties leave or are pushed out of the group. They shuffle around between the far-right group and this in, even more incoherent, non-attached. A lot of it is about egos, not policies. Um, I mean, I haven't obviously been there for the last five years and I'm not in the new parliament, so I haven't seen the Brexit party in action. Um, I'll be you know, interested to, but I, I don't get the impression that they're any more um, effective than uh, the ones that I experienced. And, and they're ineffective in the European Parliament because they are not um, <coughs> united or reliable. So the European Parliament is broadly run by the four biggest groups, Christian Democrats, the Socialists, the Liberals, we're now called Renew. We did. We also changed our name. Um, and the Greens, with a bit from the, from the left group. Um, I mean, I have to say that my, uh, my main experience of, of uh, these uh, populist, nationalist, far-right lot is a big void because they never did any work. Um, I mean, they didn't contribute on committees. I don't remember. Or certainly, I mean, I suppose they avoided the Civil Liberties Committee anyway. <laughs> but they, you know, they didn't supply uh, so-called rapporteurs. The MEP who takes the lead on a, on a legislative project or, or even, uh, you know, a representative, what we call the shadow rapporteurs from another group. I mean, I just don't remember any worthwhile input on committees or delegations. Uh, it was just all about gesture politics and collecting their pay. And indeed, several kippers in my time got prosecuted for various misdemeanors and felonies, normally to do with money and so on. Um, I mean, I, I would say there's a, you know, one hears a lot of fake patriotism uh, from them. Uh, if you, uh, it's been doing the rounds again recently, Tony Blair calling out Nigel Farage in the European Parliament in 2005. I was there. Um, it was July, it must have been just before the London bombing actually, and um, uh, the UK had just taken over the revolving presidency of the EU. And uh, normally, you know, the Prime Minister came and addressed the European Parliament. And, um, and Tony Blair, whatever you think of Blair, and Lib Dems think plenty about the Iraq War, but, um, I, I mean, credit to him on this occasion. He said to Farage, and they all sit with the Union Jack in front of their, on their desks in the plenary. He said, you sit behind our country's flag, you do not represent our country's interests. I think that was very well put. And I have to say, an interesting echo of that is that just in the last day or so, the Tories are attacking us Lib Dems um, as unpatriotic because we don't support Brexit, which I think is a rather uncomfortable echo, some of that. Um, uh, I mean, I would say it is very difficult to champion elected parliamentary democracy um, when not only all the challenges Roger was talking about, when you're faced with a Prime Minister who, because of his own foibles and faults, 
and I mean Boris Johnson, blames Parliament and sets himself up as a champion of the people against Parliament. This is a very dangerous moment. It does have echoes of the 1930s and the way the Nazis used and abused the institutions of a democratic state to see, seize power. And there was a, there was a, a I think it was a two or three parter uh, not so long ago about the rise of the Nazis on the television. Now, I am no, unlike Roger, I am no political scientist, so I'm afraid my insight into the reasons that people vote for these charlatans and purveyors of false promises and cheap slurs is, is founded purely in practical observation. I, I do take the point that there are some real issues here. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that, 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 that people are stupid and that they don't have legitimate concerns. I would say, first of all, this is a pretty indiscriminate sort of checklist. As I think Roger intimated, not everyone who voted for Brexit or the Brexit party is left behind in economic or social terms. Many are comfortably off or even very rich, many of the Brexiters, the lead Brexiters. Um, so let us assume that they were persuaded by the sort of take back control slogan, seeing the EU as remote and its legitimacy in question. I, mean, I think legitimacy is distinct from the EU being undemocratic because I would, I would say the EU is not undemocratic. I'm sure there's ways it, it can be improved. And when people talk about reform of the EU, I always wait for a specific list of things they want to do. But I do think there is a problem of legitimacy. The EU does not feature in people's sort of um, uh, scope or sphere of, of, of accepting they exist. I mean, they don't really know how their town hall works. They don't really know how this place works. I don't really know or, uh, the way this place works. But they accept it. They do not accept the EU, which actually is quite simple to describe. There are four main institutions. One proposes the law, <coughs> the two others decide them, and the fourth, the court, adjudicates. Um, you can't describe Westminster or, and Whitehall that simply. Um, no one, at, at least in the UK, learns how the EU works. No, at school, you won't find the EU in the citizenship agenda, or the history, or the geography. I looked up the national curriculum. There's nothing about how the EU works. So myths thrive. Um, then, I mean, I do think uh, that the enormous income and wealth gap uh, is it, even worse in this country than other European countries, cannot but have generated feelings of resentment and envy. I mean, then for people who are struggling in life with little, little or no rise in real wages, zero hours contracts, housing, health difficulties, uh, childcare challenges. Someone then provides an easy scapegoat of, of, of um, you know, blaming free movers or, or immigrants um, who are overwhelming your, your identity or stealing your job. Identity, I think, is a big issue. It was not highlighted to the regret of many of us in the 2016 Remain campaign. Um, I mean, I firmly believe that the EU is not stealing local, regional, and national identities. In fact, the EU puts quite a lot of effort, like on, you know, uh, uh, Melton Mowbray pork pies and, and, and Cornish pasties, trying to validate those identities. It gets very little credit for it. Um, but um, certainly, I mean, I think that the EU adds another dimension to my identity. But particularly, and I think it's mainly an English problem, not so much a Scottish, Welsh or Northern Irish problem, but white English people in particular don't seem to believe or appreciate that you can be English, British, European and a citizen of the world all at the same time, like a Russian doll, you know, one side the other. Um, they seem to think that, you, you know, it's, it's binary or something. Roger talked about alienation. I believe that the daily hassles of life are much underrated as a source of frustration, grievance and rage, which has got nothing to do with the EU or foreigners or globalisation. Both public and private authorities screw us up a lot of the time. Um, I can give you a very current um, example. Um, I, unfortunately, I, I was recently widowed, and I'm trying to get my broadband and Wi-Fi and TV supplier, who shall be nameless, a major one, um, to change the name on the uh, account. 
you would not believe the hassle I am having, which has reduced me to a mix of rage and tears. They came up with all kinds of pretexts. There was an Ofcom rule, apparently. I checked that out with Ofcom. He said it was bullshit. Well, in so many words. Um, to GDPR. Um, I helped draft the GDPR when I was in the uh, an MEP, and I said, quote me which article. I haven't had a reply to that. So then a vehicle comes along in 2016 asking people essentially, are you happy bunnies? Are you content <coughs> with your life? Do you back the status quo, which is essentially what the Remain, if you voted, wanted to vote Remain in 2016, you're essentially saying that David Cameron and all the rest of the politicians who are advocating remain and everything else in the in you know economic, social, political life was okay. You were content with it. I mean the EU has got absolutely nothing to do with a lot of the reasons why people voted for Brexit, in my opinion. So lastly, I would say I would totally agree with Roger, we desperately need reform at home. Um, economic, social, political, and I'm very much hoping that the Liberal Democrat Manifesto, which you will read. Um, with lots of interest, I'm sure, when it's um, published shortly. Uh, but particularly on the political system, there's so much wrong with the political system. The only silver lining I see in the last few years is that people have got interested in political and constitutional reform. We've <coughs> been banging on about this for decades, centuries. Um, obviously, the, the, the uh, voting system, I mean, first past the post, um, uh, is, you know, creates safe seats, rotten boroughs, um, and uh, is thoroughly unhe unhealthy for our, our democracy. Voters get taken for granted, um, and our system does not encourage active and empowered citizenship, which has long been advocated by the Lib Dems. Um, our opponents call Lib Dems pavement politicians as an expression of contempt, but I'm proud of it because it means we relate to citizens in their practical daily lives. Politics should be not populist, but popular. Um, and people should be pleased to see their local council or their MP or even their MEP. Um, you know, I've come to help you. I'm a Liberal Democrat and I've come to help um, That's what we like to think. Um, sorry, I don't want to too much of a sales pitch, but. You know, there, there, there is a real problem with our political system, and that's even without, and I, and I, I need to finish, but then the whole challenge of fake news, manipulative ads on Facebook and so on, uh, Russian interference, and isn't it a scandal that this report is not being published, has not been published today? I mean, how can a government get away with not publishing this report from the Intelligence and Security Committee? It should be able to publish it itself once it's been checked out by the intelligence agencies that you know doesn't breach national security um we we have in many ways a weak political system and uh it needs thorough reform thank you Finally, we'll hear from Labour councillor Stephen Cowan, who's leader of the London borough of Hammersmith and Fulham. He recalled his experiences and reflected on the positives and negatives that can be drawn from populist politics. Look, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm just picking the timer on to make sure I don't overrun, actually, because I, uh, I could have a tendency to do that. Um, and it is a great honour to be on the platform with uh, Maria and everybody else on the platform, but to hear particularly the challenges that she faces in what is a new and uh, a new democracy finding its way in, in the world. And we like to think of ourselves in Britain as a very established democracy, but we could debate that, whether it goes back to the Reform Acts of the 19th century or whether it really was 1928 when women got the vote. Uh, and indeed, when you look at the United States, a very old democracy, uh, you know, it's very hard if you were African-American to think of yourself as living in a democracy in Mississippi in 1961, even. So this fragile thing that we call democracy and that we think of as liberal democracy is in many ways a historical anathema. It's not meant to exist uh, in, in any normal society, and therefore we are a very lucky generation. Now. Um, I had an epiphany, which is odd for someone who is a convinced atheist, um, when I was in Athens roughly 18 months ago uh, on a hot, sticky June day 
where Lord Alf Dubbs and I had gone to see the Labour and Social Security Minister, Theano Fitiu, who uh, we were talking to, to say, what can we do to help Greece as it catches the world's poorest, most desperate children in the biggest refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War? And I like to think of myself as well-read. But when she threw her hand up to where she envisaged the North might be in her office, uh, and she says, I don't think you understand how bad things are in the rest of Europe. She said, in Hungary, we have Viktor Orban, who is without doubt a neo-fascist, she called him. Um, the same with uh, Bagis in the Czech Republic. Uh, Salvini, she thought, would get elected in Italy. Um, she talked about the alt-right coming second and beating the Social Democrats in Germany. Uh, in France, we've seen Marie Lampen coming second. In Holland, they came second. She pointed at Trump and said, does that look like a Democrat? And then she quite correctly predicted Bolsonaro would get elected in Brazil. And paused and said to Alf and I as we sat there, as the coin dropped in a very salutary way, and said, these are very troubled times. And it's a threat to all of us who believe in democracy. And that is very scary. Um, because you look in our own great country, and all of us are shocked by Brexit. Um, indeed, my other European story was we flew to Germany, to Berlin, to see our uh, twinned Baron Neukölln, uh, at our own expense, I should stress. Uh, and, and for us a bit where we were getting shown around the uh, uh, Reichstag, and two young women, one from the East, one from the West, both advisors to the MP, came out to greet us. So I thought I'd break the ice on this uh, Berlin frosty morning and say, um, I'd like to apologise for Brexit. There's nothing to do with us. We campaigned to stay in, and we still are. So the uh, most senior of these two women looked at me and said, so what did you do when Brexit happened? So I said, I cried a little bit, to tell you the truth. And she said, so did we. Because actually, if you join those two stories up, it was seen as a threat to the European project, which was a liberal project, but it was also a fundamentally democratic project, something there to reinforce and strengthen the future as we went forward together, knowing what had happened in the past. So these are huge and frightening changes, and all of us should rightly be alarmed. And it's funny, um, my partner's grandmother died about 20 years ago when she was about 93, a lady from the west coast of Scotland, sharp as a pin. And I remember talking to her about the 1930s, because there's not many of those generation left now who live through that and give, give you first-hand experience. And she, the thing that stuck in my mind, she said, we never knew it was going to get worse. We're optimists, most of us, yeah. and there's always that hope that maybe we can stop something worse happening. So this is maybe a wake-up moment for all of us in the West. In established democracies, we're shocked by what's happened to our countries. I know many friends in America who can't believe what Trump is doing and are terrified he might get a second term. But this is where we're at, and this requires all of us to be a little bigger and think a little stronger. Now, there's a positive way to look at popularism, which is to see it in a much broader context. Because if the early 21st century is about anything, it's about disruptiveness. Now, I've been um, happily married now for since 1996, but I have a lot of friends who still date. And I am just amazed that when they talk about swipe right, swipe left, the whole rules on dating have changed in something that I just don't understand. Social media, I was in New York talking to Madison Square Garden, who explained to me that the program Friends could not be made anymore because people no longer hang out in a coffee shop and joke around like that about little things. They do that on social media, and when they hang out, they want to do more substantive things, and Madison Square Garden thought that was a business opportunity for more events. But that's a change. The high streets are disappearing and pe as people shop and buy things differently. Um, and indeed, our politics has changed, and the story of Cambridge Analytica should shock anybody who looks at what happened in the Trump or the Brexit election.
So this is vast amounts of change, and whilst any change offers opportunities for somebody, it also offers huge threats. And with that degree, populism can be seen as a challenge, therefore, to the status quo at its best. In fact, Ernest Blacklow said that popularism could be an emancipatory social force which marginalised groups challenge dominant power structures. Now, we can debate that, and I'm certainly not qualified to, but certainly it is a fact that people out there in established democracies don't think the system works for them. And they don't think it works on major issues like the housing crisis, where if you have young children, then you worry whether they'll ever get a place that is not rented. And indeed, if you live in social housing, you will live in overcrowded conditions and may well find your security of your home challenged or indeed other shortages. Certainly you live in London and in, in the southeast, but actually happening all across the UK. Zero hours contracts frighten people. Not only is work changing and the nature of work, um, that offers an opportunity to some people, but it is a fear to a whole bunch of people who do not think that they can change. So these changes, which includes Brexit, includes populism, has to be seen in the wider context of the disruptive nature of the earlier 21st century. And the question for us as Democrats, and I'm a liberal with a small L, is that how do we rise to that? And I think there are some fundamental ways forward. The first thing we have to do, fundamentally have to do, is to have economies that work for everybody. Now that possibly is not the first starting point, but it's a fundamental foundation of how you make a society work. If people do not feel that they and their families can find a way forward through the legal and democratic means, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, all of those issues, they will find ways of revolting through the political system. The second is the democratic process. Now it's been very evident to us in the UK over particularly recent months, that we're one of those societies without a written constitution, without clear rights and responsibilities laid down in terms in law. Um, indeed, in local government, we continuously find that some government comes in and gives us more powers, and other comes in and take the powers away. They give us more money, they take the money away. There's no real place for local government within the British constitution. And if you look at those societies that do work well economically, you could argue that constitutional uh, settlement has been at the heart of that. Yeah. So Germany is an amazing society, but where does it start? Well, it starts with the Americans and British writing a constitution after the Second World War, which locks in those rights and show, shows the citizenry and all the different component stakeholders of that society how to flex and have their voices heard and be part of the decision-making process. Now, if we were in business or in management, it would be common sense. But if you're leading a team, you need to bring people with you. In politics, that has to be more important than ever before. So there needs to be an opportunity, if this election sees a progressive government coming into place, one of the key things that all those progressive parties that form that government have to put in place to respond to British popularism is constitutional reform. Constitutional reform that gives the citizenry proper rights and responsibilities and allows people to feel the system is fair and they can be heard. And that brings me on, I think, I think to the third point of what I think needs to happen. The system isn't seen as fair by too many people. And that surely has been when people exercise their political rights, if they can't do it through democratic means or they can't do it um, through um, any other aspect of society, including legal means, then they will find other ways of exercising their rights. Now, if we look at what people are doing and who actually, whether popularism might be in British society, I would encourage all of you to look at the British Values Survey that's been carried out in the UK since the 1970s. It defines very clearly people's psychological drivers and their clear values that they apply then to a whole range of behaviours. And one of those behaviours is voting. And without getting too much into it, the people who are most afraid of change, the people who see change in all its different forms, from immigration to the disappearance of their pub, which has been turned into a, and their post office, those people, known as settlers in the British values mode, frightened of change, respecting of authority, 
wanting uh, uh, patriotic and proud, those people overwhelmingly were the base of a Brexit vote. Yeah. Overwhelmingly. And I would bet in America, where they use a very similar system, which Cambridge Analytica used there, that same rust belt, blue collar individual was the basis of much of Trump's vote in rust belt America. Now, not all of those people are poor. People in Surrey, known as settlers, who live with houses and gardens and cars, and, have a, and possibly even retired on good salaries, some of those people were heavily settlers who voted Brexit. It's not an economic breakdown, it's a value system breakdown. So what we have to do again then, is to touch on a little bit um, what was said earlier. We have to reach out to all the different groups and make sure that we can have the system work uh, for them. Now, Tip O'Neill famously said all politics is local. So at the last local elections in 2018 in London, we had the biggest swing to Labour in any competitive area in Britain. In a borough that in 2014, prior to our first landslide, had been considered Cameron's favourite council and an unwinnable borough. So what gave us an even bigger swing, where we took another nine seats off our opponents uh, in 18, having had what everyone considered a shock victory in 14. And I like to think that part of it was the way we altered our democratic systems. Instead of making policies with a politician and a policy official, we made them in public. In fact, we often put some of the public in charge of those policies. So when disabled people had felt the system was working against them, we took the people leading the campaign on disabled people's rights and asked them to run an independent commission, gave them a policy worker, set up um, commissioners and published the report in public after the public had taken part in that. When we changed structures to our um, town hall, demolishing something, building a brand new uh, town hall, something that would normally lose your votes in any normal area, we set the very people who campaigned against the previous town hall, we put them in charge of our commission and they made policy in public, developed with the public and it seemed to be um, something done by the public. So I think the challenge is for all of us to go and reinvent democracy. I think the anger out there can be faced down and turned into a much more positive set of emotions. You can see a popular movement in what Barack Obama did in 2008 um, in that it had very broad appeal, arguing against um, an elite that had taken America into an illegal war and um, had not worked for everybody. There are positives if we can get on the right side of challenging the established elites, but it needs to be done in a way that is legal, and the solution to this is more democracy, not less. Thank you very much. enjoyed this slightly different format. Greg will be back as usual in two weeks' time. Do get in touch if you would like to suggest a politician we could interview for politics as usual, or to find out more about future Global Partners events. You can visit our website at gpgovernance.net, email us at hello at gpgovernance.net, or find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram, both with the handle at gpgovernance. Thank you very much for listening, and see you next time. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online. Thanks for listening.